Napa know-how. Keeping it simple is usually a good thing. And when it comes to rewards programs, keeping it simple is always a good thing. That's why we made the Napa Rewards program effortless. All you need is your phone number to start saving on the parts and tools you need. Then we automatically give you $5 off your next purchase for every hundred you spend. So start saving today with Napa Rewards. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Welcome to Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross, and I'm here with my co-host, Tamara Thorne. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit our websites at TamaraThorne.com and AlistairCross.com. You can also give our Haunted Nights Live page a like on Facebook or visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our Twitter handle is at thorncross. We'd like to give a big special thanks to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music, which you didn't hear because it didn't play. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Tonight we're really excited to introduce a very special guest who is a very, very accomplished writer in many different genres and a very, very busy man with lots of stuff coming out this year. Jonathan Mayberry is a New York Times bestselling novelist, five-time Bram Stoker award winner, and comic book writer. He writes the Joe Ledger thrillers, the Rotten Ruin series, the Nightshade ser- the Nightsiders series, the Dead of Night series, as well as standalone novels in multiple genres. His comic book works include, among others, Captain America, Bad Blood, Rotten Ruin, V Wars, and others. He's the editor of many anthologies, including The X-Files, Scary Out There, Out of Tune, and V Wars. His books, Extinction Machine and V Wars, are in development for TV, and Rotten Ruin is, a development, is in development as a, ser- a series of feature films. A board game version of V-Wars will be released this year. He's the founder of the Writer's Coffee House and the co-founder of the Liars Club. Prior to becoming a full-time novelist, Jonathan spent 25 years as a magazine feature writer, martial arts instructor, and playwright. He He was a featured expert on the History Channel documentary Zombies, A Living History, and will be a fe- and will be featured in a new cable TV documentary series on monsters and mythology and urban legend. Jonathan lives in Del Mar, California, with his wife, Sarah Jo. You can visit his website at jonathanmayberry.com. Before we introduce him, thank you again, everybody, for listening. I'm going to turn the time over to my co-host, Tamara Thorne, who is going to give us a reading, an excerpt of Jonathan's work. This is a short story sequel to his book, The Dragon Factory. It's called Dog Days, and it's a partial Uh, The short story follows the end of the Dragon Factory. Joe Ledger is reeling from the death of his lover. When you do what I do, you know death. You understand him and his consorts, pain and loss. 
These things are no longer abstractions. They aren't rarities that intrude into your routine, like when Uncle Bob cashes it in at Sunny Acres on his 93rd birthday, or when one of your drinking buddies strokes out on the eighth hole, two under par, but all the wrong clubs in his bag. No, when your job is war, when you're a killer, death is more frequent co-pilot than God. Death is around you. He's in you. He's of you. Sometimes he's your friend, the best friend you'll ever have. When you're down to the last bullet in your mag and you squeeze the trigger while running and punch the bad guy's ticket and what you'll always believe was an impossible shot. But it's impossible. It's just that death was your wingman that day. Tomorrow he might be going to war under a totally different flag. Death's like that. He's not fickle. He wants everyone on his side. Every warrior has the same connection. Maybe there are gods and angels up there screwing with the fates of men and death is the great cosmic bouncer. Maybe there are gods of war and death is their angel. Maybe death is more selective than we know. But if so, he has an agenda we'll never understand. I know I don't. I've killed bad men, but bad men have killed better men than me. Who knows why death favors one man over another on any given day? A lot of guys believe that death, or someone, listens to prayers and follows rules. These guys wear talismans into battle, crosses and hams of hams, lucky socks and tattoos of saints drilled into their skin. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes that's the only way we can identify the dead. Every warrior strives to understand death. They love him and they hate him in the same breath, in every breath. They try to know him, to know his mind. Me? Yeah, I know death, but I don't worship him and I don't fear him. He wants me. He can have me. No, for me, it's a jealousy thing. I envy the cold bastard because he took her, her. My love, death took the only grace I had left in life. Death took her and he owns her. She's with him down in that cold, dark palace in the dirt, and it hurts so bad. If I thought that a bullet from my own gun or what I walked in front of could buy my passage across the river Styx to her side, if I thought that, I'd ride that bullet all the way down. But it doesn't work like that. The priests and the shrinks and your friends all tell you it doesn't work that way. Death, you see, is also a jealous son of a bitch. He doesn't share. So I keep living, and I envy death for the grace he has and the grace I lost. That's Very it. nice. I love, it. I love um, it. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jonathan Mayberry. Hello, Jonathan. Hi. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. You are welcome. Thanks for sure being on. Glad to have on. you. Yeah. Yes, we are. So let's start off by talking a little bit about this piece. Um, I love this. This is really uh, mm-hmm. uh, you've personified death, in the, with, you know, which is an interesting. Um, and I love the way that you talked about, you know, y- you know, you people love him and hate him in the same breath. I think that's uh, fascinating. I've never thought of it that way. I've never, I've never quite read anything like this excerpt and it's really it's really got me thinking I need to get this book. So why don't we talk a little bit about the book that it came from and what what inspired this this scene particularly? Well, uh the quick setup for for that answer is actually who the character of Joe Ledger is. He's a former Baltimore cop who became a uh, special ops guy um in a group that that tracks down and fights terrorists who have cutting edge uh science weapons. In the first book, it's a prion disease uh, uh, retest to, to create zombies or something approximating that. And the second book, it's uh, um, genetics used to restart the Nazi master race program. 
And in the, in the course of that book, uh, Joe loses, loses someone he cares about. This story is a short story that is kind of a sequel to that. Um, I don't always wrap up every thread in my books because the real world doesn't always have a clean third act. So sometimes right. threads are left dangling. Um, with that particular story, there was something that I wanted to continue on, but to have continued it in the, in the novel, Dragon Factory, would have made the ending a little heavy, um, or a little, little uh, ponderous, rather, not heavy. Um, but it, but it, was a, it really worked for a short story, and it allowed me to explore for Joe the consequences of this war he's in. Because until now, he's... You know, he's been one of those people that's been around violence. Uh, you know, he had a very violent childhood and so on. But as a soldier, he's never really been part of it. And now he's working for a group where right. death is always around him. And, you know, I've unfortunately seen a lot of death in my life. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of friends have passed. I've, I've known people who have died violently. I've been present when people have died violently. Um, and, uh, you know, there are pe- you know, death is a, it's a selective thing. There, you, know, you get somebody who's dying of uh, horrible wounds or dying of cancer, they they want death to come and, and, and you know, be their friend. They get someone else who's trying to dodge bullets, he wants death to look the other way. So th- this was an a- exploration of, of that, and uh, it's one of my favorite pieces um, from a short story. And until this the, the, the Dragon Factory came out in the new, new edition, it was published in 2010, it came out in a uh, mass market paperback last week, I had forgotten the opening of that story, and you know, I reread it, and I, I actually enjoyed. You know, I, I really enjoyed uh, Tamara's reading of it because it allows me to hear it differently than than I wrote it, and that's always a joy for a writer. Nice. Yeah. So now let's go. I, uh, Joe Ledger. Let's talk about him. Where did he come from? Uh <laughs> I, well, I've always been a, a fan of, of action stories, and um, I've always been a fan of weird science. Joe Ledger, in a way, was born around the time I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, I met I got to, met and got to know very well Richard Matheson and Ray Bradbury as a kid. Um, my middle school librarian uh. happened to be a secretary for a, club, a couple of clubs of professional writers. And because I was an avid reader and also I wanted to write, she brought me along to the meeting. So I was meeting Bradbury, Matheson, Arthur C. Clarke, Harlan Ellison, Gene Roddenberry, you know, like, on a fairly regular basis. It was amazing. Matheson was one of the biggest influences on my writing uh, approach because uh, his, his thing was always, you know, he knew I loved horror and he knew I loved science, and so did he. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the first novel that's truly um, a horror novel use, using science fiction to tell the story, which was I Am Legend, 1954. Mm-hmm. And because uh, before that, like Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde and so on, there was science in there, but you know, he, he never gave, nobody ever gave you the math. He gave you the science, the actual science for it. Yeah. And um, Joe Ledger, my desire to want to write a, a horror story using science fiction was born then. Roll forward to 2009. I'm sitting in a diner, 2008, right? I'm sitting in a diner making notes on a nonfiction book I was writing, and two characters just start talking in my head. Now, if you're not a writer, this is a cry for help. Um, if you are a writer, <laughs> this is another day on the job. So you kind of pay right. attention to what's going on. So I listened to the conversation. Then I, you know, as a writer, really took charge of it and started writing it down. And it was the conversation where this Baltimore cop was being interviewed for a job with this special ops team. And uh, Joe Ledger was born there. Not the name, but the character. 
smart-ass sense of humor, you know, damaged uh, psyche, and a lot of other qualities were all born in that conversation. And then later on, I, uh, I come up with a name for it and pitched it to my agent. Now, the funny thing is, my first three novels were out by this point, and they were all horror novels. And uh, my, I told my agent, I just wrote a thriller. And she said, okay, so we'll find a different publisher, and we'll, we'll sell it. And that's what happened. Nice. Now I'm um, writing my uh, about to write my ninth Joe Ledger novel. Nice, congratulations! I want Thanks. I want to ask you, Richard Matheson. Uh, he's also one of my things, you know, Bradbury and Matheson in particular. And yeah. I read him for science fiction, but then when I once I discovered Shirley Jackson's Hell House, I was hooked on that. <laughs> but then I went and found The Legend of Hell House, or I think he just calls it Hell House. Was, um, uh, yeah, the the book was Hell House. The, the book is Hell House. And it's sort of a, uh, an honorarium to... Uh, uh, I can't think of the right word. He, he oh, honors... Yeah. That's the word. Uh, he honors Jackson. But the thing that interests me scientifically is he did the lead-lined room and all that, and I think he was way ahead of his time with that, wasn't he? He really was. Paranormal. He, he knew his science. He, he really knew his science. But also, um, just a little side note... When I was 13, actually, I think it was 12. I didn't, hadn't turned 13 yet. Uh, when uh, Bradbury and Matheson, when I first met them, the first thing they told me to read was The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Mm. Um, uh-huh. They pointed out that uh, that opening paragraph is the single best opening paragraph of any piece of fiction oh. ever, which I, I agree, agree. agree with. <laughs> it is. Yeah, um, we all do. And, and, you know, when I came back the following months, they wouldn't talk to me unless I could unless I could prove to them I had read The Haunting and I, I in fact had devoured it as a short book. And um so and he was already planning to write Hell House at that point. And he uh-huh. had done a lot of work with science uh with, with uh, spiritual researchers and so on and uh, also with scientists who were in the uh, the budding field of parapsychology. And so he did get his science right. Yeah. Yeah. It's- we were talking a little bit before the show about uh, some of the stuff that you uh, have going on this year, and it's pretty astounding. I'm not going to spoil it. Why don't you tell our readers uh, how many projects you have coming out this year? <laughs> it's it, it's nuts. You know, for one thing, it's it's absolutely nuts. Um, between like I've had, I think by the end of the year, I will have had four novels out. Um, I'm not sure how many collections of short stories, um, a whole bunch of anthologies, two graphic novels, and and some audio originals. So uh, I've been talking, I think it works out to 17 works published this year, not canon short stories. Wow. Um, So it's nuts. It's nuts. It is. It's funny, I put a lot of irons in the fire some years ago when I was trying to get my career going, hoping that one or two would get hot, and they've all kind of, gotten hot so now i'm juggling all that stuff but i love the fast lane so i'm good with it right so so this begs the question what is your what is your schedule look like uh on a day-to-day basis well you know i'm, I'm fortunate at this point in my career that this is my day job so i don't have to juggle another job it used to be i had a, a day job and then wrote on the side but right now I, you know i i write on average eight to nine hours a day i usually do four hours in the morning take a break, you know, lunch, the gym, whatever, and then four hours in the afternoon, and then I'm done for the day. I spend the evening with my wife, and, uh, you know, I, I have a, a home life. But I, I, I'm a very disciplined writer. I studied journalism, not creative writing in school. 
and I learned good work habits. I don't, I don't plan a, a lot. I, I, I jump in and do it. I, I do write my plots and all that stuff, but um, I don't sit around and think about writing. I actually get, get my ass in a chair and write. And, um, you know, I don't worry about writing the perfect book. I, you know, I'll write the best book I can and fix it and I rewrite and move on. And I also take 10 minutes out of every hour that I write and use that for social media. I do my own social media. And so every every yeah. 50 minutes, I do 10 minutes of social media, then do 50 minutes of writing, and that's on my, my day rolls. Nice. So what nice. do you do for social media? Like, like what, in those 10 minutes, what are you doing exactly? Like, uh, I'll, the, the, the ones I hit the most are Twitter and Facebook. I have really strong presence on both. I've got multiple Facebook pages, my, my regular page, a group page. I've got pages for my coffee house. For my, I, I share a podcast, uh, Three Guys with Beards, with Christopher Golden and James Morris. So we have that page, and a few others. Um, so I'll go and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll look at what what posts are being made. I'll make posts. I'll um, you know, like and retweet different things. And it's it's not always about my stuff. I mean, it, when I'm promoting something, yeah, I've, I've got to get out there and, and push. But a lot of what I put up on social media isn't oh, look at me, me, me. It's oh, this is funny. We can have fun with this, or here's a link to it to a uh, yeah. uh, video you might like, or here's a review that I think is really cool. Uh, I don't right. get into politics. I don't get into religion. I I talk pop culture, and I make the place safe for people to come to, so they don't feel they're always getting pitched. Right. That's right. Great. Good call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you some of the things you've got coming up. The thing I want to talk about most is X Files. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Tell us um, about um, that anthology. There's more than one. Uh, yeah, uh, the first one just came out. Uh, X Files: Trust No One just came out um, uh, about a month ago, and it's it is a fantastic collection of of stories. I I'm fortunate as editor to be able to draw on um, a group of my friends who are our top writers. You know, we have Kevin Anderson and Max Allen Collins and and uh, Ray Garten, Heather Graham, Brian Keene, Tim Levin. I mean, it's it's an incredible who's who mm-hmm. of great writers. And um, when when this uh, the backstory on this is IDW Comics, which is a, a San Diego comic company, has been doing the official continuation of the X Files show as a comic. They've been doing series ten, and uh, this started season eleven. And Joe Harris uh-huh. is writing it, doing a great job. And they also put out an X Files board game, which is really, really, really great. So I was oh, sitting cool. down with Ed Adams, who's the CEO, and we were talking about you know some projects. I'm doing other anthologies for them. And he asked if I'd be interested in X-Files. He said, do you, do you like the X-Files at all? I almost threw a plate at him. He's like, do I like the X-Files? Seriously? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, from the second episode of the show, I was, I was a, uh, a fan. I, I, I missed the first, missed the pilot. When I watched it the second week, bought a tape to watch the first week. Been a fan ever since. Know the episodes inside and out. Read all the, all the books, all the comics. And um, I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And he said, do you think there, there's enough interest to, uh, to get writers to fill a volume? So I laughed at him a little bit. Uh, about two hours later, I called him and told him I had enough writers lined up for three volumes. And he, uh, he, you know, he got in touch with Chris Carter, the creator of X Files, and he gave us the green light for three volumes. And uh, what what I really love about these stories, two two things: one, the, the writers really I pick people who love the X Files, so they wrote stories that they would want to see as episodes. And then Chris Carter gave official word that these are officially part of the X-Files chronology. So we had to come up with dates to make sure they wow. fit to the existing episodes. These are now official X-Files stories. And that is nice. very, very cool. Uh, oh, that is, especially with a new series coming. 
or yeah. six episodes. Yeah. I and we didn't know about you. the new series when we started this, by the way. Oh, no. We found that I mean, after this was in motion. It's so great. Um, I have a lot of favorite episodes, but probably my top one is Jose Chung. Oh, uh, Jose what's Chung, yours? Please. Oh, um, well, that, that, that's in my top five, no, no question. But the one that I really love is is not one that a lot of people talk about, but I love it. It's called Darkness Falls, where they're in the Pacific Northwest at a, at a, a logging camp, and there's these pr- primitive creatures, like like uh, microscopic creatures. And I just love oh, yeah. that kind of remote storytelling. Ice is another one, which is their, their nod to uh-huh. the thing. You know, I love those types yes. of, of remote episodes. But Jose Chunks from Outer Space is great. Clive Buckland's Last uh, Repose is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, oh, geez, there's, there's a ton. And I guess also the Erlenmeyer Flask, which is the, the first season finale, which actually, I actually stood up and said, holy shit, really loud when, when, when that ended. <laughs> like, you did nice. not just do that. Uh. And, um, yeah. And then we had to wait the whole damn summer for the – that show to come back on and find out what happened. Uh, yeah, now it's all on Netflix. I'm going to revisit a few of those. Um, one that I just love, I don't know the name, but it was one that was, it's a writer episode. Writers had fun writing it. It was uh, a small town sheriff, um, not the guy who was in the haunting of Hell House, or Hill House, the, Hell House, the uh, oh, his brother, Luke remake. Wilson, Luke Wilson, that one. Yeah, yeah, I love that. The I don't remember the name of, of it, but I know the one you think it, it's a it's a it's funny too. It's a very funny episode. It is. Oh, the Billy and Bob piece when uh, Mulder talks and he's a hunk <laughs> and Scully talks and it, yeah. it has everything. I love that. And and the yeah. Christmas episode, the uh, Prometheus. I think it was. Oh was yeah, uh, postmodern Prometheus. Yeah, that was it. And yeah, the, the one, one with uh, uh, Luke Wilson. I'm pretty sure it was called Bad Blood. And oh. I'm pretty sure that's why I stole that name. I, I did a graphic novel called Bad Blood, and um, uh-huh. I, I stole that name from that episode. Uh, so oh, what, is it like, what is it like switching from you know from from writing to doing a, a graphic novel? First of all, how did that come about? And and second of all, how does it differ from writing? Well, my my comics uh, uh, side job came as a result of Joe Ledger. Uh, Axel Alonso, the editor in chief of Marvel, had been uh, uh, had picked up my my novel uh, Patient Zero and read it and really liked it, and just called me out of the blue and asked me if I'd be possibly willing to write for for Marvel, um, which is one of the funnier questions if you know my background because I'm a Marvel kid going back to 1966. You know, uh-huh. as it turns out, yes, I was quite willing to work for Marvel, and uh, it was, a, it was I was freelance, which is good because it, it didn't. I, I didn't want to do full-time comics. I still don't want to do full-time comics. I'm a novelist at heart. But this gave me a chance to come in and do miniseries and specials, and I had a blast. I did some Wolverine, some Punisher, Marvel Zombies Return, and uh, a whole bunch of stuff. And Now, the difference in, in approach, with the novel, it's you and the book, you know, and it's months or depending on, like I have friends who take a couple of years for a book, but it's you and that book and no one else for a long time. Um, with a comic, it's very much a team effort. It's more like making a TV show because you have the editor who's very hands-on in comics. You have uh, the artist, and you really do need to listen to the artist. I mean, you write the script and tell the artist what art you want in each panel, but the artist's job, their A-game, is visual storytelling. And sometimes they'll come up with a much better visual storytelling uh, drive than you have, and if you're an idiot, you don't listen, and if you're smart, you do listen. 
So I, I, I learned early on, listen to experts when they're talking. And yeah. uh, I've been yeah. fortunate to work with some great, great artists and also colorists. I, Lee Loffridge, who, who did my Marvel Universe uh, Versus uh, series, I did three of those, um, brought a very cinematic lighting to it. And, it, you know, uh-huh. I had, had I'd been very specific about the kinds of colors I wanted in each panel. And he came with monotone panels for different things, and it sold the mood so much wow. better than, than was in my script. So, yeah, and th- that bad blood thing I, I did with Tyler Crook. Tyler's an Eisner Award-winning artist, and he loved the concept so much that he wanted to do the pencils, the inks, paint the panels, do the covers and the lettering. He wanted to do everything else. So, um, and he he just knocked it the hell out of the park. He was amazing. I you know I, I I love my I love what I write I you know I pride in what I write but I know for a fact that those comics were successful in a great deal because of the artists I've been fortunate to work with. Mm-hmm. Right. Let, let's talk about uh, your History Channel documentary, Zombies: A Living History. What, oh, that what is that going to be? Oh, that was out a couple of years ago. I think it's like three years. Oh. Ago. Okay. Um, and it, it, they, every Halloween or every time The Walking Dead comes back on, they'll start showing that again on History Channel or H2. <laughs> um, it's a great two-hour documentary. I was on it. Max Brooks was on it. Um, and uh, Roger Ma and Rebecca McKendry and a few other people who are you know, zombie experts. And you know, they, they uh-huh. did real high production values to recreate you know, classic zombie scenes. But what they did is they they approached it from the point of view of what if zombies were real? How would the outbreak happen? What's the science and so uh, on? And uh, so we were all the talking heads on the show, and it was it's a, it was a great great show. The other wow. program that I'm I'm involved in, and that was by the way a one two hour special. The other project, mm-hmm. and it's still they're still deciding what the name is going to be. It, uh, I'm on six of the eight episodes, uh, and it'll, they think it'll be out uh, early next year. But it's all about monsters of various kinds and urban legend and myths. And um, that was great because we got to talk about all sorts of monsters. And I, before I was a novelist, I wrote a bunch of nonfiction books on the folklore of the supernatural, which is why they asked uh, me to be on the show. Oh, um, great. So oh, that, that was a I lot do- of fun, and, and it's going to be a great show. Zombies. Why do you think they're so popular? Uh, well, that's a whole conversation in itself. Short version of that answer. <laughs> Is you can uh-huh. tell any kind of story using the zombies as a as a as a canvas. Uh, they are by by definition a metaphor for other things, and they're an easy metaphor to get. So, uh, what, in the zombies, everyone knows immediately where you're at if you say zombies, right? So right. once introduced into a story, they are a massive shared threat. They disrupt all the status quo. They strip away all personal affect. They they essentially reduce the characters to their true essential selves. And at that point on, the zombies almost always in these stories fade to the background. And what happens is we focus on people who, whose lives have been disrupted. And that's the basis of human drama. Drama is people in crisis. Uh-huh. So you can tell any kind of dramatic story using zombies as a background. A background. That's why yeah. people say the zombie genre is, is running its course. No, it's not. One particular version of it may, may eventually get stale. But as a genre, it'll always be with us, just like vampires, just like romance, just like mystery. Yeah. It's a trope that allows for infinite variation. The one that got me, I mean, it's its evolving just like vampires do. And the one I really liked, I don't like romantic comedies except for uh, Warm Bodies. Love Warm Bodies. Isn't that great? 
I mean, yeah, love is an in love. infection. How great is that? I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful show. And Isaac uh, Mahoney, have, who wrote uh, it, a hell of a nice guy. We, uh, My wife and I uh, had dinner with him a couple of years ago. Really sweet guy. Mm-hmm. And just, and the book is a little darker than the movie. Um, oh. And he's writing a prequel right now. But it's still, it's Love is the Infection. And I, I love that concept. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, several books of yours that we uh, want to get into and talk about, but um, before we do that, I want to bring up something also that we were talking about a little bit before the show, um, and that is pen names. And uh, I share your uh, uh, opinion on pen names. Let's talk about them. You said that you used a pen name once, but that you wouldn't do it again. Um, yeah, let's I, talk about that. Yeah, here, here's here's why I used the pen name. Prior to becoming a novelist, I was a nonfiction uh, book writer and magazine writer, and I had written a whole bunch of martial arts books and had been inducted into the Martial Arts Hall of Fame. Um, so I was kind of a you know a, a well-regarded expert on the subject. Was, I was taught martial arts history at college, Temple University, and so on. And I had a three book, a four book deal with a small press, and I'd done three martial arts books. And I, I for the fourth book. We hadn't decided what I wanted to do, so I proposed doing a book on supernatural folklore, which is a lifelong interest of mine. And yeah. the editor nearly had a stroke and assumed I had. Um, and you know, <laughs> he said he would only publish it if I used a pen name because he, his opinion was that my, my martial arts readers, seeing me write a book about vampires, would think I'd had some sort of a cerebral incident. Um, <laughs> turns out that book outsold my martial arts books like 30 to 1. So he was wrong. Wow. And I, but it went out under the name of Shane McDougal. And Shane McDougal started getting invited to speak at places where Jonathan Mayberry was not, which creates a weirdly <laughs> acrimonious problem with your uh, identity. Now, this yeah. is all before social media. When uh, Around the time I, I broke into, into novels, I was also doing a whole new set of nonfiction books. And I decided I really wanted to brand myself under my own name. And this is back when MySpace and Friendster were the social media kings. Um, and you know, I just saw how much it, how much time it took to build a brand with one name. And I, you know, the author has become the brand, not the book. Right, right. It's a byproduct. And if you're going to have multiple identities, you've got to do all that extra work, and all that work is time that you're not writing. So right. I want yeah. to do one thing of social media, and you know, I I told my agent right from the jump that uh, I got my agent in 2000. Uh, late 2004, so and she sold my first book in 2005, not 2006. And I told her right at the beginning that I was not going to write just one thing. I wanted to write, you know, horror, thriller, science fiction, fantasy, nonfiction, you know, all sorts of stuff. And uh-huh. since then, she's also gotten me into into young adult and middle grade, and it's all come out as Jonathan Mayberry. And you know, sometimes right. I will tell teachers, no, the kids should not read mm-hmm. my Joe Ledger books, um, but. It's you know it's all branding and what I find is that yeah. I, you know the kids may be reading my uh, my vault my uh, Nightsiders middle grade book, but their parents mm-hmm. want to read something else of mine. They might go read Joe, Joe Ledger, and kids yeah. as they get older go into my adult fiction. So you know it's one audience and we're all mm-hmm. having fun. And I do not like pen names. If I was writing oh Penguin Erotica or something, sure I'll use a pen name. Other than that, right? No. Right. How did your agent? Exactly, kind of like how how I feel too. Is because you you are branding yourself. You if you you know get enough books out there and you you get an audience, it's it's your name that they're going to go look for when they want to when they want more. I I am at a complete loss as to why 
some people I mean I know authors who write with three four and five names it's it's I don't even understand it, it it's never well, made any there, sense to me there's some disinformation out there that's floating around. Um, people say that, that if you write in different genres, um, that it, they'll, you'll be competing against yourself, which is not true. Um, they, they, and they've been told that if you uh, write in different genres, that because you're known in one genre, people in another will immediately dis, you know, distrust. Like if you're writing romance and then you wrote a science fiction novel, people think, oh, it's going to be a, a romancy science fiction novel. And that's not true. You know, um, right. it'll be whatever that, that book is that you choose to write. So, you know, it's old old uh, propaganda that, that's still floating around. And also, some of it dates back to the days when, you know, uh, a gentleman or gentlewoman didn't write popular fiction, so they had to write uh, under a pen name. And that was 150 right. years ago. It's time to move on. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I totally get it. That's exactly, that's exactly how I feel. I think that you need to... Uh, Pick a name and stick with it because, you know what, if you can write in, in, in different genres, I think that the audiences actually are okay with that. A lot of authors have done it very successfully. I don't know who's telling everybody that you have to pick a whole different name and a whole different brand for a whole different genre, but I don't see any evidence yeah. of that being necessary. Yeah. Look at look at Richard Matheson. No two of his books would be on the same bookshelf, for God's sake. I mean, no. Sarah Becker. What Dreams May Come, um, Hell House, Shrinking Man, I Am Legend. They're all completely different genres. It's all Richard Matheson. Stephen King, I mean, it is science fiction. Salem's Lot is, is horror. Um, Dark Tower is, is epic fantasy. Um, Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon is is young adult uh, contemporary. It's all Stephen King. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, now, Hello, is everybody there? We're here. I'm still here. Oh, okay, great. I wanted to ask about some of your other books, like Ghostwalkers. Tell us about that. Uh, Ghostwalkers is, is my first attempt to do something tied to a game. Uh, I was <laughs> approached by the people who did uh, the Deadlands role-playing game, which is an extremely popular role-playing game, and um, they asked me if I'd be interested in writing a novel based on the game. And I, I'm not a games player, so I, I'm like, well, I don't know anything about Deadlands. And they sent me a stack of like games rules and, and, and comics and other stuff. And I dove in, and what I found was something absolutely wonderful. So, you know, almost, it's one of those things where it's alt history and also a little bit of supernatural, some science fiction. So I said, well, you know, I, I, I can come up with a story, but I want to get weird. How weird can I get? Um, <laughs> and, and their answer was basically, knock yourself out. So what I wrote is a... Old West, steampunk, all history, science fiction, supernatural with zombies and undead <laughs> velociraptors. Oh, that's great. So, so there, you know. And <laughs> I had an absolute blast writing that book. Um, but it, it, it's interesting. It's going to be a series. I'm only writing the first book. Sh- uh, Shauna McGuire is writing the second one. And Jeff Marriott's writing the third, which means that you're going to have completely different takes, different parts of this Deadlands world. And I, you know, I've already read Jeff's book, which is brilliant. Um, and I haven't read Shannon's yet, so I'm looking forward to it. She's one of my favorite people and one of my favorite writers. So I think this is going to be a really popular, fun series. And it comes out uh, September 22nd. Um, and uh, um, we have uh, there's actually a really cool um, book trailer you can find on my on my Facebook page for it. Uh, it's just so much fun. Oh, nice. for it. 
the ones that I'm really interested in, I see the covers uh, for them, and I really, really love them, and I would like to learn more about them, is uh, Rot and Ruin. What are these? Uh, I, have not checked, I have not checked these out. I, are, is, are these zombie <laughs> books? I'm not sure. They, they are zombie books. Um, nice. I, and the reason I, I wrote, they're, they're zombie young adult novels, but they're, they really can be read by anyone. We have a huge adult crossover for those. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I saw Night of the Living Dead on its world premiere October 2nd, 1968. So I've been a zombie fan from the jump, back before the genre didn't have the name. Uh. Zombie um, and, but, so as a kid, you know, I was 10 years old when I saw that. Since then, I've been always figuring out what would happen if, you know, what would ha- how would I survive the zombie apocalypse? What would happen if I survived it? And this book kind of grew out of that thinking. Um, but it, it started as a novella. Uh, Christopher Golden was doing a novella, uh, doing an anthology of zombie stories called The New Dead, where he asked each author to do something that was outside their wheelhouse. Up to that point, I had never written something post-apocalyptic and had ne- never written a YA story. So I wrote a, uh-huh. a young adult novel about growing up 14 years after the zombie apocalypse. And um, you know, there's, there's 30,000 people alive, 7 billion zombies, you know, and uh, now what? You know, so I, I, I stepped into that world, you know, when the, the apocalypse was not part of the experience of these kids. They, you know, they were born during or after. So their world didn't end. Mm-hmm. This is their world. So we did, we did a four-book series. Uh, Rotten Road was the first. Uh, that was Dustin Decay, Flesh and Bone, Fire and Ash. And this September, uh, same day as Ghostwalkers, by the way, uh, I have a, a collection of Rot Ruin short stories coming out called Bits and Pieces. And it tells more of the backstory and kind of side stories and, and so on. And uh, we're in development for a series of feature films based on this. And um, uh, it's really popular. There's been a comic book, um, a graphic novel we did called Warrior Smart that kind of fits between two of the books. And it's got, it has a huge following. The, the thing that really surprised me about it, I was writing the, the zombie books I would have read as a kid. But they went on to win yeah. a slew of awards, two Stoker Awards, plus a lot of these statewide awards given for books that get reluctant readers to read. And oh, uh, nice. won a bunch of those. And uh, knowing that a book that, that you wrote, you know, that you had fun writing inspires kids to read, not just read your stuff, but read anything. Man, that's the yeah. biggest uh-huh. charge in the world. That is, that is the best. Oh, yeah. Nice. Now this is and this is in develop this is in development for film. How 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 did that yeah. uh come to be and how do you feel about that? Uh really good about it. Um one of my uh um uh well what happened is an actor, uh an Asian guy, the, the main character is half Asian. His uh his stepbrother is full full Japanese American. And this this actor, uh Louis Ozawa Chen Ken, um who had been in the movie Predator with Adrian Brody had read the book uh, on the recommendation of a friend of his and called me, you know, Skyped me out of the blue. And, you know, he said, I, I need to be in this, uh, I need to be in this movie. How, how do I get the movie? I'm like, well, there is no movie. Uh, and he said, well, what do I need to do? And I said, you need to go find some producers. 40 minutes <laughs> later, he steps back with two producers and we suddenly have a movie deal. The one producer, Paul Grelong, is now the, the executive producer, head writer on Scorpion, which is on TV right now very popular mystery show. And the other one, Heath Cullen, was, uh, he, he worked on Justified, Wilfred, and he's been directing episodes of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So they're, wow. you know, these guys are, are, are TV guys, but they're, they're looking to use this to break into features. And um, I've, uh, the script they're working on, well, right now we're at the script phase. The script they're working on is brilliant, and I think they're going to do a hell of a job with it. I'll bet. Those are some good shows. 
Yeah. Uh, um, and by the way, Joe Ledger, Ledger is also heading to uh, the big screen. Originally, it was optioned for for, uh, for TV with Extinction Machine, but just a day or two ago, we had a conversation with the producers, and they've been meeting with studio heads about a Joe Ledger feature film, feature oh, wow. film franchise, actually, that they're pitching as <laughs> I Hard Meets Fringe, which is pretty close. <laughs> oh. That yeah, action, fun. snarky humor, and weird, weird science. So yeah, <laughs> oh, perfect. Love it. Now tell us about Limba Think. Ah, I love this project. This was not my project, but I, I am happily on board with it. Um, the late wonderful Ann Perry uh, had this idea of a company that um, you never really meet them. It's a mysterious company that, that leaves business cards out there. You know, if you're looking for a job, if you need employment and are willing to do pretty much anything, contact us. And, um, right. you know, each, you know, she brought in four writers for the first volume, and each of us did a story with only that setup, not knowing what the other writers were going to do. And so, you know, each of us did something completely different. Uh, there was you know, science fiction, there was, there was uh, straight horror. Mine, I introduced a, a character, or brought back a character I'd, I'd used in an earlier short story, who was a, a werewolf private investigator. And he's uh, one of the Ben and Dante, which is this folklore. In, fo- in actual folklore, these, these uh, uh, families in, in Italy and other places claim to be claim to be descended from werewolves who would fight evil almost, uh, at night. They would, they, you know, so they weren't bad werewolves. They would actually turn the werewolves to fight monsters. And uh, this is actually part of church records, which is cool. Because some of them were put on trial by the Inquisition and freed because the Inquisition could not make them, could not break them, which. And you know they try. Um, so uh, I, I made this character, Ben and Dante, uh, which is what they're called. And uh, I did a story for it called Strip Search, which I think is my, my best short story I've ever written. And then they asked me to do a second uh, one for Limbus 2, so I introduced I brought that uh-huh. character into the town that I used in the setting for my first three novels and brought Joe Ledger in. So it actually ties in three of my worlds together. In one wow. Story, three guys walk right. into a bar. And I will be doing a, th- a third Limbus story uh, around the end of the year, but I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with that one yet. Nice. Great. How often how often do you tie care, uh, tie your worlds together in different books like that? A lot. Like um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, there are some books I write that are not tied to any of the others, like my Nightsiders middle grade series. It's science fiction for, for kids. It's not tied mm-hmm. to any other world. But Joe Ledger shows up as a as a sixty five year old man in the rotten in the later Rotten Ruin books. Um, uh-huh. Character from you know, he he winds up going to Pine Deep, which is where my first three novels were set. Um, the Sam Hunter character walks in and out of different stories. So as far as I'm concerned, they're all part of one big weird Mayberry verse. But I love it. In the book, yeah. yeah, in the book I just wrote, Kill Switch, which is the uh, eighth Joe Ledger book. Uh, that one deals with super string theory, interdimensional travel, and Cthulhu, because why not Cthulhu? Um, but you know, I, I raised, uh, raised the question that maybe that's one possible future for Joe Ledger, not necessarily his definite future. So yeah. I, I, you know, my, the Mayberry verse may, may in fact be a multiverse. Nice. <laughs> so, okay, and we have, to, we have to talk about this, too. You are a five-time Bram Stoker Award winner. That is awesome, and congratulations. Thank um, you. It shows a bribery and threat will accomplish. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you just answered my question, which is, what are some, what would you, what kind of advice would you impart on, on budding writers and 
I guess more specifically, what are some of the secrets of success? Um, the, the the best secret of success. Actually, I'll give you a couple bits of advice that Bradbury Matheson gave me. Matheson said, "Don't be a jackass." It's really important not to be a jackass. Not you know, it's right. not only about <laughs> you. It's not only about you. And you know, Bradbury leavened that with by saying, "Writers should help other writers." So you've got to be part of the community of writers and help it move forward into safer waters um, rather than being part of the fear camp that thinks if you help other writers, you won't get an opportunity or somebody will get your opportunity. So right. you know, being, being part of the community and helping other writers is a big part of it. The other thing is, uh, and this is something else they, you know, these guys told me, um, a writer should always be concerned with improving their craft. Always. It's an ongoing process. You never get to the point where you're good enough. You always keep getting better. Um, and with that, you have to understand that writing is an art. It's a conversation between you and the reader. Publishing is a business that sells copies of art. It is not about art. You have to be good at both and understand the nature of each. Publishing is not about, you know, if you've written something wonderful, no one in publishing has an obligation to sell it or promote it. Um, right. So you have to be part of the business model, the business machine, uh, and you have to be willing to do what's required to be a commercial success. But right. at the same time, you always have to be good at your craft. And I think one of the things that, you know, for my, my career, one of the things that, that really has helped me get along and to, to get opportunities mm-hmm. and doors open for me is the willingness to try just about anything. And I'll give you an example of that. Well, two examples. One is the fact that my agent suggested I do a, a young adult novel. I told her she was absolutely nuts. Um, and, um, <laughs> Now it's half of my sales are young adult novels, so clearly I was wrong about that. Uh, but I, I tried it. You know, I, I didn't think I, I could do it, but I tried it anyway, and it turned out to be successful. But one of the things that, that examples of something that really shows why you should try to stretch, an editor came along a couple of years ago, John Joseph Adams, great editor, and asked me if I'd be willing to write a story for an anthology of Oz tales, Wizard of Oz tales. And you know, th- this was so far out of my wheelhouse. So naturally, I said, "Sure, I'll give it a try," because you know I, I believe that's what you should do. And, and I had ever, you know, when I sat down, I had every intention of writing this dark and moody story about the Tin Man getting the heart of a serial killer and going on a rampage. And, but that's not what I wrote. <laughs> what I wrote, I sat down and wrote this charming little story about a little winged monkey girl whose wings were too small for her to fly, so she goes in search of magic traveling shoes. And oh. even as I'm writing it, I'm like. What the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, I love it. You know, the whole time yeah. I'm writing it, I'm like, I'm like turning to the audience. I'm like, seriously, this is. So the story was, you know, was included in the anthology. All the reviews, including Publishers Weekly, pulled that out and said this is a story that really resonates with the feeling of the original L. Frank Baum stories, which was a nice compliment. And then the Baum estate included that story in the official chronology of Oz. It is now wow. part of the official history of Oz. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. I, that, that's all nice. like milestone, you know. Now, that yeah. is an example of I would never have had any the opportunity to stretch as a writer or the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to become part of something as important to our cultural landscape as Oz if I had not been willing to ch- just take a chance. So... Yeah. You know, I, I look for opportunities to try to stretch as a writer because I was told that's a smart thing. And while doing that, I always look for the way that I'm going to have fun doing it 
Because even if you're writing something dark, if, if you're having fun writing it, it shines through in the, in the writing. And right. one other thing yeah. I want to tell writers out there is um, your social media presence should reflect uh, an attitude of inclusion, not exclusion. So you shouldn't be using social media to smash other writers or to put people down or, or to you know get political. It's not your job. Use social media to to create community and have fun with that community. Right. So nice. true. Very good. Now, okay, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you, okay, you. what's your process like? We talked a little bit about it, but I'm curious as to do you do a lot of plotting or do you do, you do more of just kind of like write as you go? What is I'm your process like? Yeah, I'm a structure oh, yeah? guy. I I write a lot out, uh, but I I'm I'm not stubborn about it. So if I write, if I spend a day or two, you know, roughing out a plot, it gives me a formula. This this action plus this action results in that reaction and conclusion. Uh, but at the same time, I don't assume that I had all my best ideas the day I wrote my plot. That's an that's an irrational thought. It's unreasonable. So as I'm writing, if new good ideas come up, I you know I'll, I'll take some time and, and and integrate them into a revised version of the plot. I'm doing that right now. I'm writing a, a book. I can't actually talk about this plot because it's it's I actually have a non-disclosure agreement on it. But as I was writing a scene today, I thought, oh my god, this would be so much better if I did this. But it wouldn't mean going back and adding some stuff to earlier chapters. So I did that. Um, I didn't revise the whole book. I added stuff. I'll add, but not revise until I only revise when until the, the final draft, until the first draft stuff. Um, but I went back and I added scenes to build up to this, and and I think it's going to be a much better book as a result. Nice. So, uh, you know, my structure. You know, I, I like structure. I like um, uh, following good rules, good work work habits, and um, I also cut myself a break. I don't imagine that my first draft has to be anything other than complete. It certainly doesn't have to be good. (laughs) It just has to be complete. Because even if I can look at it at a first draft and say there's 100 things wrong with it, fine, that's a a to-do list. I go do those 100 things. Right. Right. Well, and while we're talking about, we're talking about, um, you know, processes and, you know, the art versus the business, you say a lot of things that I, I agree very, very strongly with. Um, very uh, much wisdom there. Um, but while we're on that note, what are your thoughts on traditional versus independent publishing? Okay, um, I, I you know I'm in traditional publishing, and traditional publishing is you know it's it's, it's my bread and butter talk to my family. That said, I have a lot of friends who are indie publishers. I have absolutely no no problem with indie publishing. I have I have a lot of respect for a lot of indie publishers. Um, but there's one thing that I, I I think is important. I only I will only read an indie book if it has been edited well. Um, mm-hmm. right. If you're going to self-publish, get someone get someone to go through it, whether it's a content editor, developmental editor, and eventually a proofreader, to make sure that what you've written isn't just one view. Because you know every one of my novels has benefited from the fact that my my agent and my editor. And also my editor's assistant has given me notes, yeah. and those notes matter. Um, even though I'm a professional, I'm writing my 25th novel, I should know how to write a novel, and yet every novel I get notes on. 
Um, right. and, and any writer who thinks that their work is so perfect and they don't need someone else's eyes on it is deluded. And oh, yeah. That delusion is, an, is unfair to the reader because you know, they can package it really nicely with a nice cover and all that, but if it's not edited well, then you are cheating the readers who are going to read it. So don't right. cheat them. Exactly. Whether you're professional, you know, whether it's traditional publishing or, or independent publishing, always act like a professional. Always act with respect to the people who are going to lay down money to read this and invest time to read it. If you approach it that way uh, and you want to go indie, absolutely do it. You know, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I always advocate people try conventional publishing first because I like to see writers get paid. Mm-hmm. Right. That's great right. advice. It is. It is. This is really oh. seriously good stuff. Now, we're almost out of time. We we need to talk about V-Wars. We do yes. need to talk about V-Wars. Yes, we um, do. <laughs> V-Wars, V-Wars is a very exciting thing for me. It's, it's, it's a big thing for me right now. It started out as a series of shared world anthologies. I, I, I did a setup, which is, um, you know, uh, multipolar ice releases a virus. The virus triggers a dormant gene. That gene is what creates vampires. So it's a science fiction story in which there are vampires. There's no supernatural element to it at all. And I did it as a shared world thing. I wrote the framing story and invited other writers to come in and write individual stories. And I got great, great writers. Scott Sigler, Nancy Holder, all these great guys, Keith Candido, great people. Um, They're doing well with IDW's publishing it in their prose line, even though they're normally a comic book company. I also did two graphic novels for them, two runs of comics that we talked in the graphic novels. We have a board game coming out in December, um, which with rules written by award-winning game writer Rob Davio, who did Risk Legacy and a few other things. And right now we, uh, we're two weeks away from IDW taking it out and shopping the script for a possible TV series. The script is written by Tim Schlotman, who was the head writer for Dexter, and that is one scary-ass script. Ah. Right. And, um, right. so, and, and, and the management company that's helping them put all this together is Circle of Confusion, and you may recognize some of their previous projects, The Matrix Films, Mad Men, and The Walking Dead. Right. Wow, nice. So, yeah, so th- th- that's, that's great. great. I love this friggin' thing. Uh, we have the third volume coming out in November, and we have two, <laughs> at least two more volumes of the anthology in the works right now. And... Uh, once once they sell the TV show, and we really expect them to sell the TV show, uh, we'll probably do more of the comics and more of the more of the uh, viewers anthologies. It's there's it's a lot of you know there's a lot of stories to tell about a conflict between humans and vampires when there are good guys and bad guys on both sides of the conflict. Right. Oh. So now I, I have a similar question for you about uh, uh, vampires as we had for zombies because, you know, there's no, you know, denying the fact that zombies and vampires, they just never really go out of style. People love them. What is it you think about vampires that people respond so powerfully to? Well, it, it, there's a, a lot of different answers. The, the two most common reasons that I see, one, in modern times when we've romanticized the vampire you know, a lot of people don't have uh, a lot of people have moved away from traditional religious views, um, but they want their gods. They want, you know, the demigods. They, you know, we don't believe in, in the pantheons of Greek and Roman, so we have other immortals that we can look at. They're they're beautiful. They're gonna live forever. They have strange powers, but they're like us in some ways. And maybe they'll help. They'll elevate us to godhood as as people are, uh, as has happened to people in in you know Greek and Roman mythology and so on. So they're the demigods, one side of vampirism. 
The other side, the darker side, vampires represent anyone or anything that takes valuable things from you by force, whether it's rape or, or, or being swindled or any of the other ways in which you can be abused and, and uh, stolen from. And vampire, the darker side of vampires is all about taking. And you know, most people would not sit down and read a novel about rape because it, it, right. it's too real yeah. for them to read. But they'll read a novel about uh, a, a destructive seduction um, right. with mm-hmm. vampires. And right. the message, if you're paying attention, does get through. Um, when you read well, like Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which is one of those brilliant uh, vampire novels, mm-hmm. or Camilla yeah. by, by Sheridan Lafanau, you know these vampires use seduction as, as, a, as a tool, but it's a lie. And beneath right. that is their hunger that they're trying to satisfy. And, you know, a, there's a lot of rape that starts off as um, the appearance of seduction, date rape, for example. Uh, but yeah. at the end of it, there's a monster there. And, you know, these stories allow us to explore those things without actually using the words that hurt us, which is, you know, rape and, and incest and so on. So we use, we use vampires as, as the stand-ins so that we can bear to read the story. Right, I think that's I fascinating, and I, I think it's, and I think you're right for it. Definitely, that's fascinating. Yeah, I've never heard such a good answer. I mean, that that yeah. that's very satisfying. All those, everything you said. Seriously. Uh, yeah, and, and oh. it's it's something that I've I've given a little bit of thought to over the years, having written about vampires. My first three novels were vampire novels, yeah. and the vampires were not nice in those books. Right. They, they were they were old school. <laughs> they were old school bad bad vampires. <laughs> Those are the best kind. <laughs> they are. So, before before we wrap this up, um, uh, where can readers find out more about you? Well, if they put in my name, Jonathan Mayberry, and spell it the right way, last name is spelled <laughs> M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. It's not M-A-Y, it's M-A-B. Put that in, and I'll, you'll find me. My website's jonathanmayberry.com, Facebook, Twitter. It's all under my name. It's my brand. Just look for me, mm-hmm. and I'm there. And uh, also, I'm doing some appearances. I'll be at uh, Dragon Con Atlanta uh, next weekend. Dal's one of my closest friends. And um, I'll be in for, if, I don't know if anybody listens to the show from Europe, but I'll be in, in Tuscany for the Lucka Comics and Games in, uh, on Halloween weekend, which is half a million people. So that should be wow. fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all over the place. I, I do a lot of appearances, a lot of traveling, and having a blast out there, you know, just... just Sharing in the, you know swimming in the geek waters with my geeky nerdy friends. So I'm uh, so fun. <laughs> Find me. Nice. All right. Um, thank you. Thank you for being on the show, and um, we wish you the best of luck. It was great meeting you. We I'm did. a fan. It was. Yeah. Yes. It's been great. Uh, hope to have you back sometime. And oh, absolutely. You. you guys, you guys asked the right question. So uh, yeah, this has been fun. Sweet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I like to think it's because you know we 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 know what it's like to be asked. To... <laughs> oh yeah, but not like I, yeah. <laughs> if you don't ask the right it, questions, you don't get you don't get the answers that, that go anywhere. So you guys are doing, but, doing yeah. a good job. No, thank you. And I appreciate yeah, you inviting me on. Yeah, we would we would love to have you back, and it was great having you on, and it was um, an honor having you on, and it was great to meet you. Truly, and uh, uh, pleasure to meet you guys too. Thanks so much. Yes, and uh, thank uh, yeah. you, everybody, for listening. And I'm 
not going to attempt to play our outro music because it's giving <laughs> us fits. So we're just going to kind of all of a sudden go very, very quiet, and that's the end, and you'll know because it'll be just dead air. So until <laughs> next week, <laughs> thank you for joining us, and until next week, we wish you haunted nights. And sweet screams. Thank you for listening. <laughs>